0: In every other discipline of engineering, that's a common concept. I mean, we test cars where you test the brakes and you test the safety belts. No one would ever say that a brake test replaces a safety belt test. That would be silly. But when you get into software, sometimes people go, oh, well, I ran one tool, why do I need these other ones? Um, it's because you're testing different things. Maybe we do a disservice to our people that we work with of not clearly explaining that in understandable ways. You know, you can say software component analysis, which makes sense to developers and you know people in our industry, but if you're an executive that may or may not make any sense.
1: Welcome to the Reimagining Cyber podcast, where we share short and to the point perspectives on the cyber landscape. It's all about engaging yet casual conversations on what organizations are doing to reimagine their cyber programs while ensuring their business objectives are top priority. With my co-host, Stan Wiseman, head of security strategist, I'm Rob Borrego, chief security strategist, and this is Reimagining Cyber. So, Stan, who do we have joining us for this episode?
2: Rob, our guest today is Dennis Hurst. Dennis is the founder of Saltworks Security, Inc., which is now part of Orsi Software. And Dennis is a highly respected security expert in the area of application security and the integration of security activities into all aspects of the software development lifecycle. You know, he has broad experience in in security and app dev and product management, IT ops, um, and given that experience and his is working with large organizations and trying to scale these kinds of solutions, um, we have him here today to talk to us about uh, the important area around security uh, posture management for applications. And and Dennis, before we dive in, uh, anything else you'd like to add about your background to our listeners?
0: Um, just, you know, I was, I really have been a developer most of my life. So got into application security through to being a developer and actually um Being the victim, if you will, of a good pen test and learning what could happen even into something I thought was good. So, uh, you know, it's kind of like that joke, the hair club for men. You know, I was the first customer, I guess. So um, I think I bring that perspective of a developer's perspective, which has been really handy as the world moves to DevOps and we're integrating security you know, earlier in the lifecycle. That's been a really handy experience.
2: You know, before we get into the whole security aspects of all this and how we actually can govern application risks, a place to start is... How do you define what an application is in this context of what we do now in modern development? That's a really good question.
0: Um, it's interesting because it's it's almost one of those things, depending on who you ask, you're going to get a distinctly different answer. You know, If you ask a executive, it's going to be a system-level answer like, it's my booking system, it's my shipping system. You ask a developer, they may speak about microservices that make up that system and the uh, ops people may talk about a collection of microservices and front-end services and you know load balancers. So defining that is challenging. Um, that actually becomes really important when you're talking about risk is understanding the audience of people you're speaking to, and clarifying when you say an application, what's the scope of your definition. A great example. We did a test years ago of a, a large company, and um, they had exposed microservices on the internet. Well. No one was thinking about that being a bad thing. Everybody was thinking about bits and pieces of the system. But nobody was thinking, oh, maybe putting a microservice on the Internet with no security is a bad thing. Um, So it wasn't even a design flaw. It was just an oops flaw. Somebody just put something in the wrong place because nobody was thinking about the system. And the people that were weren't thinking at a low enough level. Um, It was just a mistake. So I think that's a it's an important question. Is a lot of times I'll say, "What's the system?" Which I'm what I'm trying to get to is, how do you define the collection of things we're discussing at this moment to make sure we're having the appropriate scope. Based so all on the so, so
2: all the components are considered for that system to deliver that function. Right. Right.
0: And that goes from a macro level, you know, down to a micro level. Of you know, a, a microservice needs to put rules around who can call it and who can't. That's its world. Whereas a macro level design for an entire large scale enterprise um, is going to look at the appropriateness of using various components at different places in the system.
1: You bring up a good point, you know, Dennis, as it relates to also that the risks involved, you kind of alluded to that as you were describing the applications and how you get out of them really, what, what's in the system, what are all the components so you can kind of piece it together. When you talk to people, there's a lot of different people that are involved in those conversations, I'm sure, you know, but, but. Their interpretation, kind of their perspective relative to the application risks involved, um, mm. that's that's very wide, right across kind of multiple. I'm sure responses you're getting. Just look at it from kind of you know, only it down to a few things that are simple for the audience to understand. You what, what should the organizations be looking at relative to kind of key application risk areas to be concerned with the most? Right, there's a lot of things going on. I'm moving parts with APIs, microservices, but when you look at things kind of top level in your work. What do you interpret those kind of top level risks to, to, to be aligned to the most?
0: I'd say the two big areas we would think about, um, and it's kind of at different ends of the spectrum. Uh, one is defining risk of the system inherently. So like a threat model is the thing that we commonly use for that. So we're just defining what are the components, you know, where does data flow, who stores data, who processes data. Uh, really just defining what is this system, where is it exposed, what is the nature of the data that's stored within it. Um, if you think of a credit card system, you know PCI clearly says things like tokenize data as soon as possible. And what they're ultimately saying is you took something in that's risky, get rid of it as fast as you possibly can so that you have safer data throughout. Um, that's kind of one end of the spectrum. Uh, the other end of the spectrum, if you think from a, a life cycle is how do I report on and view and understand have I done the appropriate levels of testing on the systems that I've designed? So have I done... Static analysis, and open source analysis, and dynamic analysis, yeah. pen testing, all the different things. And to your point, that is getting more complicated because now we have things like container security, because you put so much of so much of security configuration is embedded in the container that came from a developer's desktop, which is hard if you're a developer to know. Oh, you're going to run this Docker container in a cloud environment somewhere. Um, so under it, it's sort of two ends of that spectrum. One is the risk, the threat model is one of my favorite tools to use to d- define what is the system and what are the components, what is the inherent risk. Um, and then the other end of that food chain is having ways of aggregating all of your vulnerability data, data together to understand have we run appropriate tests, how old are the tests, did we pass or fail, so that we can start to do metrics-based evaluation of can this system go alive or not. That Those two things give you a really good picture. I understand the risk and the nature of the thing that I'm testing and the results of tests that I've run.
2: And you you addressed there, Dennis, I think the fact that you, you do need to have a combination of testing methods to mm-hmm. look at the various components of that system and to truly understand the vulnerabilities and weaknesses that may be exposed. And so you get value from doing static code analysis. You also get value from the other end of the spectrum and doing penetration testing of the whole operating environment. Oh, the variety of these tools that are being applied to support testing and the output of them can get confusing at times, right? I mean, if you're looking at trying to then assess from the sources of testing that you're you're actually doing across the life cycle and on all these various environments and components, how can an organization truly get that visibility into what the risk is when you, the outputs sometimes don't really mesh well together uh, as, as far as the tools don't have the same vulnerability categorization, or they don't necessarily have the same language. And so somebody trying to triage and understand and ultimately govern the risk of their portfolio or that, you know, it, it can be challenging. Yeah, g- good question. I think two big
0: things there. One is um, having systems that can aggregate and correlate those, the vulnerability data together. Um, you know, We've partnered with OpenText to create one called Insight that aggregates vulnerabilities from different systems and normalizes the data and the meaning um, that gives you the first thing of just getting everything in one place. I um, think the step, second step is also then, like to your point, of communicating to the invested parties what each of those kinds of tests do and don't do. Um, it's too easy, and I, you know, when I go to RSA, I hate the, you know when people say we make your app secure. What does that mean? Um, there, there's so many parts of the app, so I think communicating honestly, and that's a training activity, doesn't have to be super complicated. I think we can express it in simple terms um, that people understand. Of why do you do um, open source scans? Why do you do static scans? What, what, what do you get out of each of these things, and what don't you get? To your point of pen test, pen test is a great way to find logic and business flaws. Um, Uh but it's not going to find everything a static scan would find, nor would a static scan find everything that a pen test found. It's, it's, um, you know, it's interesting to me as an engineer, um, in every other discipline of engineering, that's a common concept. I mean, we test cars Well, you test the brakes and you test the safety belts. No one would ever say that a brake test replaces a safety belt test. That that would be silly. But when you get into software, sometimes people go, oh, well, I ran one tool. Why do I need these other ones? Um, It's because you're testing different things. And I think we um, maybe we do a disservice to our uh, you know, people that we work with of not clearly explaining that in understandable ways. Um, it's, you know, you can say software component analysis, which makes sense to developers and you know, people in our industry. But if you're an executive, that may or may not make any sense. Right, you have to kind exactly. of explain, how do we build software? It, it, you can keep it light. I mean, you can keep it sim- simple enough to be understandable uh, and be clear. So then when they see a dashboard with lots of data, they can go, oh, I see, there's different kinds of tests. And this is simply telling me, you know, holistically across the lifecycle, what am I getting from that?
1: You know, one of the things, Dennis, you were talking about is um, is really aggregating all these different results, because they can come from multiple different sources, right? When you look at this piece of it, what I want to kind of get at is, you know, there's application security governance programs, you're hearing about, you know, application surface management. There's a lot of different things going on, but there's got to be some solid examples that you've had in your experiences working with different organizations that really those those outcomes have made a huge difference for their program and maybe helping identify certain security vulnerabilities in their environments with all the different things we've had over the past couple of years going on as an example of that. What are you seeing out there?
0: Yeah, great question. So we we've worked with a number of companies, large multinationals. They seem to be the most interesting ones. Um, I, I won't use any company names, but I'll kind of give you enough information to make it interesting. They were a large uh, food food and beverage manufacturer. And um, like most large food and be- beverage manufacturers, they had lots of different business units locally around the world. So they were producing products in, all around the world, had localized websites, localized systems, sometimes localized procurement systems. Um, and a combination of using attack surface management let us understand what all assets they actually had. So when they were looking across the globe of systems, they were able to understand what system existed um, or systems existed. Then combining that with a risk management system, which really was complementary to like an application inventory, where they had their list of what they thought they owned and what the relative risk of those were. Then they could start to map between what they knew they had and its risk and what they owned but didn't know they had. And really that's where Those two things are become very complementary. Surface management is gonna give you information about what do you truly have in your portfolio versus an application inventory risk management system which says, what do I know I own and I understand the risk of it. So by combining those two, it can be extremely informative um, to to understand where your blind spots are. It's the old saying, "It's what you don't know that'll get you. Um, Those two together can be tremendously helpful of identifying what do I know I own do I identify its risk correctly versus what do I own? Because somebody out there in the company stood it up, but I don't know what it is.
2: Because I think that's one of the problems that organizations have. They, they sometimes know that their CMDB is is incomplete um, or is is in process of trying to get complete, and they may not have a, a good handle on all the applications that are active in their portfolio. I think another aspect of the challenge is some organizations i've worked with are applying application security testing methods to those applications that are in flight and that are in a project in a software development active you know a life cycle but they don't necessarily take on the the inventory of apps that aren't actively being developed and some of those can be quite old and legacy and could have vulnerabilities they have no idea exist because they have never assessed those, uh, you know, and, and there's that that sort of the debate of should you go ahead and scan everything, but then there's no money or project associated with those applications that don't have active development going on them that year, um, mm-hmm. and is that a wise thing to do as far as, you know, exposing that? I mean, what's your what's your belief on how to handle those kind of situations where co- companies are struggling with that, and what do you recommend to them?
0: I think the industry's changed. You know, if if, we, if you would have asked me that question, say, 10 years ago, I probably would have begrudgingly said it's better to not test them. Um, if you think of com- rules back then, PCI being an example, um, PCI is a prescriptive governance type system. It says you must do X, Y, and Z to be certified per, for, for payment cards. Um, what we're seeing now more, though, is uh, more liability-based type policies and fines where if you lose data, GDPR is a great example. If you lose data, there's huge fines. If you lose data because of negligence, the fines double. So it kind of changes the rule that govern around of ignorance is no longer bliss. It's it's actually more liable. If you lose data and said yes, we knew it was risky, here were the things we were trying to do to mitigate that, you're going to get fined, but significantly less than if you walked in and said, yeah, we just never tested it. We knew it had a million rows of PII data. Doesn't, in it but, doesn't yeah. play
2: well in court, huh?
0: No, so. I think uh, that whole breach with Equifax when their CEO was in front of Congress, um, right. he, he tried that. Well, I didn't know it was the security guy's job. And um, that really played badly. So I think to me, that was, the, that was a huge shift. It, that and GDPR, maybe some of the California laws really shifted the industry where ignorance is no longer bliss.
2: It's, you might as well go ahead and yes. scan your whole inventory and... And and even if you don't have the, the ability to remediate immediately, then at least you have some opportunity to put in place other countermeasures.
0: Yeah. Maybe you can mitigate it or, you know, maybe you use the system last or try to protect it in some way. Um, But I think ignorance being bliss is really not the case anymore.
1: You know, Dennis, I wanted to just kind of connect the dots back to that business context, because you alluded to it a little earlier where as you're, You know, working with different organizations, it's difficult at times for them to understand, you know, what does this actually mean to the business? And how do I Mm -hmm. actually interpret the conversation so that when I am speaking to an executive, for an example, it's a well-understood concept as opposed to the technical jargon behind the scenes, right? You talked about that. When you go through this process of, you know, here are the different components that make up the actual system. At the end of the day, what does the system actually deliver to the business? Right. So it's going to be at some point figured out and understood and you're working with different people in the organization. How do you kind of help prioritize what those key business applications are so that it's easier to translate that conversation, right? Because if I can kind of almost paint this picture of a visual dashboard that has all the critical business applications by priority to the business as a whole, right? right? In essence, people at an executive level will understand the impact of the application because it's aligned to what particular kind of business operations is delivering and right. in essence, the revenue to the business, right? right that's impactful. That, that translates very quickly to an executive. Is that something that you're seeing really kind of bubble up to that level of interpretation of some of these kind of you know visual dashboard-based approaches of this is really the impact of what the application means or the system means from a security concern to the actual business?
0: It is. So, a lot of times, what we'll do in those cases, and that's it, it, a good, g- great sort of uh, question because it gets to how do you define the difference between vulnerability and risk? Um, you know, SQL injection is a critical vulnerability. We all know that. But if it's on an internal system that doesn't do anything critical and only three people can get to it, it's extremely low risk. So, typically, the risk is a combination of the value of the asset uh, that could be a, the value to the business, the value because the data is risky something like that. The exposure of the asset of the application, you know, can you get to it from the outside world or not? So what's the number of the population of people that could hit it um, and how long it's been sitting out there. So if, if it's been out there for five years, you're probably, you're going to be more likely that it's been hit and you've lost data. In, in a system that does evaluations like Insight, when we can work with a customer to define the value of the asset, the exposure of the asset. And that goes back to if you have a good application inventory and you know which applications have more value or risk um, and a good tax surface management, so you know what's exposed. Now we can start giving real value around risk. And if you pair that with like really good threat models where we can show a simple picture, a good threat model is a the graphical portion of it anyway, is very simple. And that I can show to an executive and say, hey, this system that runs your manufacturing line is exposed on the internet, and there's a severe risk that somebody could shut you down. Now they can go, oh, that's really bad. Uh, my daughter actually works for a company now. have been doing security, security forever. But um, she works for a manufacturer and was able to show where they had a uh, controller for a factory in Korea on the internet. She was able to walk in and go, guys, I can turn the factory off. This is bad. But that was a great yeah. example of showing there was a vulnerability, bad passwords, There was exposure on the internet, um, and it was high value. Turn the factory off. Showing those three things and then showing a picture of what it meant in just a simple diagram, which was very similar to a little threat model, completely communicated to the factory what the problem was. And they went, oh, yeah, we got to fix that. So simple diagram, clear definition of risk was huge.
2: I have a related question, Dennis, you know, again, going back to the whole idea of we're trying to manage the risk associated with an application security portfolio of an organization, mm-hmm. and hopefully over time, show that the trend, that risk level for a business unit or a company as a whole's portfolio is going down, that the practices mm-hmm. that are in place are are working. Have you identified the KPIs that organizations at, at executive levels resonate with? with them as far as they they understand that high level metric that would help them demonstrate that the practices being applied are actually working
0: there's there's always the um the, the simple one you know it's number of vulnerabilities that that's a simple one that's a more well it's a simple number it's a complicated way of communicating value think of a company that starts an appsec program and they start scanning and they're onboarding new applications every week and that goes on for a year well, Arguably, even if they're fixing things pretty quickly, their vulnerability counts are going to go up quickly. There's other metrics that you can show, things like mean time to resolution. So what's the average amount of time it took me to fix things? And hopefully we get faster. That's an indicator that your developers are getting more skilled. They're more responsive to fixing. They're thinking about things more. Other things like in in source code analysis, we can do defects per thousand lines of code. So a density type measurement. That's particularly helpful. And then we, we can also do things like uh, filter out any application, you know, maybe only look at applications that were onboarded a year ago when we do our, graph, when we do our metrics. Because then we can look at, okay, of the people that onboarded into the program, how are they doing? Not somebody that got onboarded 20 minutes ago. So there are ways to do it. Um, it's not just a vulnerability count. Um, vulnerability count is the easiest thing to talk about. But as you're onboarding in a large company, especially, um, you really have to look at things like mean time to resolution, defect densities. Um, You have to do dashboards that are more specific to people that have onboarded to show of the people that were onboarded a year ago, how are they doing?
2: But it's not necessarily a performance thing that's going to impact them as far as HR is concerned. It really is, again, just trying to determine those that have had the training, are they applying it?
0: Right. And are they getting better? And sometimes I think that leads to, you know, senior management. If I consistently see if if senior management, um, you know, the VP of development of a group is valuing security, things get better. So I think those things are, there are also measures of uh, management's commitment to improvement, uh, which you, know, you think of an audit, for example, they're always going to say, when you if you have an audit, it's usually not a simple pass fail. It's a, hey, there's a finding and what are you doing to mitigate it? If they come back the next year and you haven't done what you said you were going to do, you're going to have a bad day. So not unlike that of putting guidelines around. And we see this a lot where companies will say you have 30 days from the point where you find a critical issue in production to fix it, 60 for a high. They'll have some sort of metrics that say what defines in compliance. Um, And that becomes another good point of which groups are in compliance and not. Who's identifying vulnerabilities quickly? who's got the skills and have trained their developers to fix them quickly and are deploying them quickly, which is a pretty good, solid metric of how fast do we respond and improve.
1: Well, Dennis, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing you know, these different approaches that you're working with different organizations to support. You know, Really, I guess a couple of things, right? One is how they're actually evolving their application security program. Mm-hmm. And two, the, the great message that I'm continuously hearing from your responses is You know, the metrics are absolutely important, but also the painting the picture for what it actually means to the business and how we're helping that conversation flow and and translating. As you said, right, we all know from a security perspective what a SQL injection means. That doesn't translate well to what that actual impact is to the business and the executive or others that really need to understand, again, operationally, we've got some serious issues we have to deal with. So appreciate you coming on and, and sharing those experiences. And thanks again. Thank you. Appreciate you having me on. Hey, thanks, Dennis. Thanks for listening to the Reimagining Cyber podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to have us cover a specific topic of interest, feel free to reach out to us and you can find out how in the show notes.
3: Hello, I'm producer Ben. And just as Rob and Stan log off and power down, you should know that there's a whole world of Reimagining Cyber episodes for you to explore. For example, this edition is by no means the first time we've had an AppSec expert on the show. Back on episode 30, we heard from Kristen Bell, Senior Manager in Application Security Engineering at GuidePoint Security.
2: I like to start with standards versus policies. I think standards are a little bit more palatable. We make those documents very educational so that they're guidance, not just thou shalt do such and such or so and so. Because if you just start pushing tools into an environment, There's a lot of testing going on and there's a lot of results coming back, but nobody knows what to do with them.
3: That was Kristen Bell from episode 30 called Governing an AppSec Programme by empowering dev teams. Now, there are many podcast directories out there, but our research shows that the majority of our listeners download the show on the Apple Podcasts app. So if you are one of these folks, why not take a moment to rate and review the show on the app? Apple's top secret algorithms love that kind of thing and it helps others find the show. Essentially, however you listen, please do subscribe, follow Share, make yourself a reimagining cyber podcast t-shirt. Just spread the word. Thanks for listening and goodbye.